0: Hello, and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances, and I work for The Reader, which is a national charity bringing thousands of people together every week, all over the UK, in order to experience and enjoy great literature through shared reading. In the last episode of this podcast, we were talking about what makes a particular piece of literature great for shared reading. Staff and volunteers at the reader who run shared reading groups are always looking for more of those pieces of literature from any era or origin which can be struck into life in shared reading settings. And as the reader's work continues to diversify into social enterprise and public programming, and as its network of shared reading groups grows across the UK and across the world, we try to make sure all those tried and tested works of literature run through all we do. So, beginning in spring this year, the reader will pull together some of that literature and bind up the main strands of its work in a themed bookshelf of selected poems, stories, novels, non-fiction and picture books – a constellation of reading matter which we will explore through the year's partnerships, programming and shared reading. The themed bookshelf for this year is called Walking the Earth and it houses literature about the natural world and about living alongside our fellow humans on and with planet Earth. You'll be able to see the selection on the reader's website when we officially launch the Walking the Earth bookshelf on the 26th of April. And we'll explore some of that literature in this podcast. Beginning with, in this episode, a poem and a picture book. But first, to awaken us to the season and to an awareness of a natural world somewhere springing into life, I'll hand over to my colleague at the Reader, Claire Ellis. Hi, my
1: name's Claire Ellis, and I'm head of learning and quality at the Reader. Um, Springtime, favourite poems at this time of year? There are many, but you know, one that I often find myself kind of reciting and, and saying aloud in fragments because my memory is not too good. Uh, but saying aloud impromptu, if you like, as I walk past trees that are starting to come into life again and and make that wonderful rustling sound. Um, The poem has to be The Trees by Philip Larkin. There's a bit in the poem where he talks about the trees as unresting castles, And he says that, you know, despite this idea of loss, how actually, you know, springtime is that time for things beginning again. And he says, yet still the unresting castle's fresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. And um, I love saying that kind of aloud in the open air, the wish and the whoosh uh, of the trees moving, um, of those those rhythmic words from Larkin. And the feeling is one of making me smile, making me feel alive again um, and young, um, even though I'm not so young anymore but that um, feeling of, of youthfulness and being able to begin again, no matter our age or our experiences.
0: If you are listening to this podcast and you are a parent of young children, you will hopefully be aware of the story barn the Reader's Imaginative Play Space for Children and Families, situated at the Reader's headquarters in Calderstones Park in Liverpool. All the Storybound's varied activities for children are based around books and stories, and the staff there, called Story Hunters, know which special stories will fire a child's imagination. They've chosen 10 of these for our Walking the Earth bookshelf. The picture book, The Promise, published by Walker Books, is an enduring classic that deserves its space on this and any bookshelf, with a captivating story by author Nicola Davis, beautifully illustrated by Laura Carlin, and also with a powerful, ambitious vision at its heart. It tells the story of a girl living in a hard, mean city, who attempts to steal an old woman's bag. It turns out the bag is full of acorns. And the old woman exacts a promise from the girl to plant them all, which she does with transformational results. We spoke to the author Nicola Davis about how she came to write the promise and about her own reading life.
2: Lovely, okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We are here this morning with children's author. Zoologist extraordinaire, Nicola Davis, thank you so much. Lovely to be here. I'm Cara, I should have said as well, I'm Cara, Head of Children and Young People at The Reader. Uh, and when we started the podcast at The Reader, I, we just felt very strongly that we wanted to have some much-loved children's authors involved. So we were delighted when Nicola said she had the time to come along and chat with us. I guess we always like to start, really, Nicola, with hearing about your relationship with reading and, and your love of reading, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the first book, perhaps, that you remember reading. And oh, wow. First book I remember reading. Um, well, th- first thing to say is that I didn't
3: learn to read quickly. I found it really difficult. I really struggled. And I can really distinctly remember being in school. Um, I went to a rather peculiar, very small, very old fashioned school. And the only reason I went there was because it was the nearest school to where my parents lived. They never fussed about schools, really. It was just kind of, they'd move somewhere and then think about schools later. The closest one, yeah. Which led to some fairly spectacular educational disasters. Anyway, this was one of those educational disasters. And I remember sitting in what we used to call kindergarten in those days, looking at the blackboard and the teacher pointing at letters on the blackboard. And I can remember thinking, well, what are those? They're not even pretty. They're really boring. Why do I want to know about this? I want to be outside running about. And just being really resentful and angry about it. Um, And I can remember that feeling for quite a long time. And then I don't know what happened, but the penny dropped. I got it. And I was the youngest of three kids. By a long way, my nearest sibling was 10 years older than me. And so I was very solitary. And books became my world. Books became my friends, my escape. And actually the very first books I remember reading, my father, because he was from a Welsh working class family. So, you know, books were about learning and aspiration and getting on in the world. So we bought a set of Encyclopaedia Britannica, which I remember everything about them, the feel of them, the smell of them, the weight of them. But the bit that I loved most was at the end the last one in the series at the back had a series of acetate illustrations very 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 finely labelled with very complicated grown up labels and they were of the human body so you could go from the outside of a naked human body which was quite exciting um, and <laughs> right the way down you could peel away the skin and then go down to the organs right the way down to the bone that I returned to that, to those illustrations and the labels and the complex scientific words that some I didn't really understand. They absolutely fascinated me.
2: Did you, um, w- you know, was it a house with lots of books?
3: It was a house with lots of books. You know, my dad was the first person in his family to stay on at school and uh, get an education. Uh, and similarly with my mum. I come from a long line of miners and steel workers and smallholders in South Wales, but Welsh culture and actually Welsh working class culture is very rich and so there was lots of music, lots of singing, lots of records, always you know classical music playing in the house, usually at ear bleeding volume um, and, and, and lots of books. And, and I was read to a lot as a child. Uh, You know, the ritual of weekend mornings was that I would get into mummy and daddy's bed on daddy's side because mummy was always asleep and um, I'd be read to. Jack London. uh, I remember being read Call of the Wild by my father and Hiawatha. And my father told stories. You know, he was a really good natural storyteller. So he would make things up. And my mum, too. But my mum's stories were always stories about her life. And they were always framed by what she was wearing. So we would be sitting in the garden and she'd say, you know, when I was 16, I had a dress that was the colour. Oh, the colour of that rose over there. And I'd cut it on the bias and she'd do all the actions. And then she'd tell me what happened to her while she was wearing
2: this dress that she wore. You oh, know? I love it. And how much trouble she got into because she was naughty. <laughs> suppose I'm intrigued to know, Nicola, if there are any books that you go back to because of that sense of making sense of human experience or, you know, any books you connect with particularly? I think I, poetry, there are things, there are poems
3: that I learnt as a child that I go back to. Poems that my father taught me, actually. My father knew a lot of poems by heart and I'd sit on the edge of the bath in the morning watching him shave. Fascinating, watching stuff. <laughs> and that noise very peculiar uh, and he'd recite poems keats he loved keats so those you know season of mists and mellow fruit from this close bosom friend and the maturing son conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that ran the thatchies run you know all of that uh, and he'd stop and 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 tell me what was in his heart and his mind associated with those words so all of that i i go back to it's kind of all, it's like a, a loop that's playing in my soul the whole time, that stuff. There's something to be said for re Are you a rereader? Do you, you know, I, I used not to be. I used to be a real kind of, oh my God, so many books, such a short life, gotta read them all. <laughs> you know, all of that. And I ditch that now and I reread. I I I've accepted that actually I can't read everything. And really experiencing something that you love at every level that it has to offer you something is 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 more wonderful i i reread um our mutual friend uh, i've twice now once read and once listening onto the audiobook and i probably will read that again this year and then there's another book which not so many people know called uh, the peregrine by j a baker and it's a very strange skinny little book by a very strange author who really only wrote one or two things Uh, and it's about obsession really it's about a man who is completely obsessed with peregrine falcons and watches them and follows Mm. them in the wild and the descriptions of the landscape and I I reread it every few years I almost never get to the end because the prose is so beautiful that I just kind of read it more and more and more slowly and slowly and then I'm kind of you know I've had my meal of it and I'm full and then I put it away for another few years you know but I think maybe this year is the year where I might actually get right to the end of it again for the first time in about two decades you know it, it's nonfiction, and it's about looking at the world you get to a state with it where you don't want to look in the pages anymore you actually want to look out there of you
4: course. know it,
3: tur- it turns you outwards instead of inwards which is a wonderful thing actually You read a huge breadth, Nicola, then. You know, you've got... Well, I read a lot of non-fiction. And I have to read a lot of non-fiction for research. So I'm about to do a book about plants. Uh, And although it's only a picture book, I say only a picture book, you know, non-fiction picture books are the most demanding things to write. It's part of the series that I think you know, Tiny, Grow and Lots, and it's called Green. It's about plants and the role they play in the world even though it's only for littlies and the way I have to package that information has to be accessible. It still has to be the best quality information that I can muster. for my readers. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to make sure I'm up to date. I have to make sure I've got it all straight in my head. So there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of botany uh, being read here over the next few weeks. The thing about picture books, I mean, there are many wonderful things about picture books, but picture books are read multiple times. So you don't just have one hit. You know, it's very different from theatre or film, where you just have to make sure they get the message now, or even a novel. But a picture book is a slow build. If you've done it right, your readers will come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. And the layers and layers and layers of meaning will be laid down and revealed with every rereading. I've never thought of it like that that's it's almost like a relationship with a picture book isn't it yeah yes it really it's that picture books are an absolutely extraordinary art form I mean totally unique really in the way that they work and the way that they can work across boundaries of age and culture and nationality and they're very 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 powerful and unfortunately there are a lot of people who interpret I mean not so much now I think teachers and parents are getting the message about picture books now, that picture books are a really good way of exploring something with a child, even a child who might think that they're beyond picture books. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do with the language of my books is i tried to make the language accessible for the littlest ones, but satisfying for the older ones, So they don't feel they're reading something babyish.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about The Promise and, and King of the Sky and, and titles like The Day War Came, do you feel a sense of not wanting to patronise? You know, is that something yeah, Absolutely, inspires your, your worth? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And, and also that I really want to make sure that I talk about, you know, it's not that I don't like funny, frivolous. I love all that stuff. Uh, I, you know, I've got, a very, <laughs> I've got a very ridiculous sense of humour. But I, I really want to talk about the big things. With kids, and I think that's partly because as a little child, uh, you know, there were big things happening in my family, and conversations from which I was utterly excluded as a small child. And the problem with that is that you you then find out just enough to get the wrong end of the stick, and that can be really wow. damaging. So I want to make sh- encourage parents and teachers and all adults really to to open up about those, to be courageous about those difficult subjects and conversations because you we can't we can't wrap our children in cotton wool but they are the most difficult thing to write they're a nightmare they're (laughs) an absolute nightmare they're they're the things that most make me feel like I'm going to give up
2: (laughs) really yeah they're really
3: really hard And, and emotionally hard as well because you know you find the way to convey this information because you thought about every other way of doing it and you finally found the way that works uh, and then you give it to an editor and they start to pick it apart and of course they're so finely constructed that as soon as you start to take one thread out the whole thing kind of unravels so they're 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 a fight to write they're a fight to edit and when they finally come out this massive release <laughs> you are there in the world.
2: Yeah, you must feel quite commit. You know, do you feel quite committed to to keep them going? Well, I did,
3: but I think my work pattern will change. I mean, at the last the last ten or fifteen years, you know, I've done I've done be- between four and six nonfiction or picture books, or you know, every year. Uh, and quite um, tired now.
2: Relentless.
3: <laughs> I'm quite tired.
2: You've written know, you over sixty
3: books. Yes I think it might be I I haven't counted family bookworms Wales told me I'd written 80 but I think they must be counting somebody else as well as mine (laughs) Um, uh, and I think it's definitely more than it's definitely more than 60 and there's another you know there's another three coming out in the next year so. um, Do you have any favourites? Well a bit of my spirit goes into every single one of them but there are There are ones that are my favourites because of the job
2: they have to do in the world. The Promise. I wanted to talk about The Promise, actually. Is that okay okay if if we linger on The Promise for a little bit? Because every year at The Reader, we choose a theme to plan and focus our programming and our publications. And we put together an accompanying bookshelf of novels, poetry, non-fiction that follow this theme. And the theme for this year is Walking the Earth. We really want to talk about human experience, what it is to be a human being, the journeys we make, how we live together. Um, and The Promise is one of the books on our children's shelf. Oh, chat. that's so lovely. I'd <laughs> love to talk to you about The Promise and, and how it, I guess, how it came into being. Well, it, it's...
3: Most of the books I write, I come up with the idea and I take the idea to a publisher and the publisher either says, no, go away, or yes, please, thank you very much. But with The Promise, it was slightly different. I was approached by my publisher who said, would you write us a picture book version of The Man Who Planted Trees, which is a very, very famous tiny little novella written in France in the in 1950s about a man who planted trees and who transformed the landscape around him hugely influential in the early days of the environmental movement massive effect international bestseller but interpreted interestingly as fact not fiction anyway i said no <laughs> i i know the book very well i love the story but i don't want to steal somebody else's story also i want to write something that has a child at its heart and that is set in cities because actually most children live in cities and reconnecting children with nature in cities is, you know, of all the things that we could be doing to help the world. That's probably in the top five. So I thought about the book for a long time uh, and I uh, I was waiting for an operation on my shoulder. So I couldn't work very much because I was in a lot of pain, dosed up to the eyeballs of painkillers and I just sat down at my desk one morning and I knew that I was ready to write this story but I had no idea what it would be and I just did it and it, 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 in two hours it was done and I think we changed the sentence after that
2: so it came that naturally yeah, so it
3: just came that quickly and that is some that sometimes happens that's that's happened to me like I don't know five or six times could you
2: describe the story to us, Nicola,
3: just in case it's anybody... the story. Doesn't... It's the story of this little girl who is a street child. So she has got nothing and nobody. And my other motivation in writing this story is that I meet a lot of children, well, in normal years, all sorts of schools, all sorts of countries, and I can look out at an audience of kids in a school and I can kind of tell the ones who are having a rotten time for various reasons and sometimes that's connected with deprivation and sometimes it's not but I wanted to write a story for those children to say you have more power than you think and things can change things can be different and you can change the world around you you know you have that ability and because it's also about seeds it's about acorns and it's about planting there is a big environmental message but it's really about it's really about how this child transforms herself and transforms the world around her and transforms her her future and of course you know the big part of the story is this extraordinary sort of visionary illustration from Laura Carlin who is she's just an illustration genius you know
2: so you knew The Promise was always going to be Laura from the second that you saw?
3: Yeah, so the second that I saw her work, I knew. There's something about the way she defines space. It's got this kind of visionary, otherworldly quality to it. But it also has quite a theatrical quality to it, which is great for the page turns, because the page turns in picture books work like scene changes in theatre. And actually, The Promise is now an animation, BBC's wanted to, yeah, I wanted to lovely a- director called Chi Tai who just was fantastic to work with because she totally got us she totally got what Laura and I did and she's uh, worked with Laura and an animator to make this beautiful animation um, that is now at the heart of a sort of campaign of environmental activism that we're partnering up with various organizations over the next year two years. Yes
2: tell us a little more uh, tell us a little more about that this campaign of of wanting to well, it engages what we what we want to do is we want to use the film
3: together with a book as a way of sparking reconnection with the natural world for children in nature-deprived areas, so deprived urban areas. So that might be partnering with an organization that can say, okay, we can offer you these kids tree planting opportunities or we can help them make an urban garden or a school garden so um, we worked with uh, the Lost Woods Project in Glasgow uh, for the launch of the film October last year and in the coming year in September we're teaming up with the uh, uh, CLPE, Council of Literary and Primary Education um, and various other organisations to deliver this message of environmental action the importance of nature the importance of connecting with the natural world for children's sense of well-being but also for their sense of awareness about what needs to be done with climate change and how almost everything that we do in our lives needs to change but that's that's not something to be frightened of that's something that's that's actually exciting Mm. Because what it will deliver is a fairer society and a society where everybody can have green trees and blue sky, not just a few lucky ones like me who live in the countryside.
2: It sounds fantastic. And I, and I know I've um, expressed already Calderstones Park in Liverpool we're in, a, in an urban environment. We'd love to be involved in it. Yes, please. Thank way, you very much. <laughs> in any way that we possibly could, because we're constantly trying to engage children and families with our green space and get out sharing stories out there in our park. Brilliant. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, the promise has really resonated, hasn't it? I think it's got a huge kind of, well, it's just well-loved, isn't it? Um, it is. It. I mean, it's not.
3: It's one of those slow, it's not like, um. you know, it's like a massive hit, like Guess How Much I Love You or bare hands but it's got a it's got a consistent following and more people this year actually more people discovered it in lockdown not just because of the animation that's on the BBC but but just for itself and it's it's been translated into lots of different languages and I've had I've had some amazing experiences reading that book. I was I read it in a, in a library in Boston very tough school library. Uh, And a kid came in sort of at the beginning of my session with four minders and none of the other children turned a hair because it was obvious that this kid always had four minders and he crawled around on the floor. And at the end of my session, I finished the session by reading the promise and he'd crawled his way to the front. And was leaning against my legs and when I finished reading it I had long very long hair at the time and he got hold of the end of my hair and pulled me down next to him and he said that story's about me and that, another one was the same same book at all and that was in a school in upstate New York and uh, I was working with a very very hard-nosed librarian you know she was <laughs> great but she was a bit scary and I was reading to this group of kids And I read The Promise and there was a, I could see a little girl at the back, you know, sort of slightly scruffy little kid at the back, who was just beaming with smiles. And next to her was the tough librarian, you know, with dust in her eye. Like <laughs> and um, I said to her at the end, I said, "So, so what was going on there?" Because she wasn't the sort of person to be into. Yeah. She said did you, did you see the little girl who's standing next to me? She said she lives in a car with her three siblings her mum and two dogs not a camper van a car um, and i have never seen her smile in school in the four years oh. she's been here so i know it works
2: and it feels so relevant you know because was 2013 was the promise public yeah, yeah. And, and you know so years have passed and it feels more relevant now than ever doesn't it yeah, well hopefully I think now you know
3: now is the moment because it's got an it's got an undeniable message which is nature is really important we need to connect with it and every single one of us can help you know it's Greta Thunberg's message really you know Greta says no one is too small to make a difference yeah and that's and that is so empowering for children You know, I mean, one of the things I do when I read it is I get kids to pretend to imagine an acorn. And I say, okay, you're holding a life. You're holding a life that will stretch out into the future far beyond your life and the lives of your descendants. An oak tree can live a thousand years. So if you plant that one little thing,
2: it's huge. It's powerful. It, I was just the powerful you took the word right out of my mouth it, when you're a child that feels so powerful doesn't it to think that you could make such a difference and that you have control of that seeds are very
3: exciting seeds are very very exciting and very very powerful uh, I've got a, I'm sort of beginning to construct in my head a sequel to this novel that I've just uh, that I've just finished and i know that somehow seeds are going to be a part of it and i don't know yet what it's going to be but i know i know that it will be uh, and that idea that you can carry something so small and it can make this massive
2: transformation i know nature and particular animals and wildlife but, but also plants and animals you first were your first passion pre writing I just wondered if you had any anything to say or or any thoughts around how wildlife and and nature and your environment now has helped you over this last 12 months oh I mean I I I wouldn't have survived
3: without being in the countryside I have lived in cities and there are things I love about cities I absolutely adore London but I need the trees and the sky and the birds um that calming reconnection and actually I think that everybody does and I think in lockdown, you know, you think of how many things you've seen on social media about people saying, wow, I heard the birds in my garden for the first time and people discovering that for themselves for the first time and the, uh, the sort of ineffable, undefinable thing that that does for you and when I was very small, and we used to, I live in Pembrokeshire now and uh, we used to come here on holidays when I was little and my parents lived in North Pembrokeshire for a while but I can remember at six or seven sitting at the edge of a cornfield overlooking the sea in Little Haven actually I know the exact spot <laughs> uh, and, and watching the corn move with the wind and hearing the sea and knowing that I would die and knowing that I would still be part of it. And I think kids get that. You know, I think I think little children have very sophisticated and deep emotional understanding of the world, even if they don't have the language to express it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's really, really important for authors to remember That understanding can be quite sophisticated, even if language is not there to support it.
0: That was the author Nicola Davis, speaking to the reader's own Cara Orford. In Nicola's book, that initial promise to plant a bag of acorns leads to a kind of chain reaction, a series of alterations and new beginnings as people see their world and each other in a new way. As Nicola described, hearing a great story or a great poem read aloud can have the same transformational effect. In this next part of the episode, we'll hear about such a poem, another from our Walking the Earth bookshelf, called The Sycamore by Wendell Berry. Hi, I'm Fiona and I work for The Reader.
5: There's something really special and great about when you read something for the very first time and it hits you um, and sticks somehow and I wanted to read a poem today that I only came across a couple of weeks ago when I was chatting to a group member of one of the shared reading groups that's happening via Zoom at the moment it's a London-based group and I was having a great conversation with a group member called Patricia And thanks, Patricia, because you introduced me to this poem, which I now love. And we had a great conversation about what the poem has meant for you and what it's done for you in a way. So here's the poem and here is Patricia's thoughts. The Sycamore by Wendell Berry In the place that is my own place, Whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, There is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven into it, hacks and whittles cut in it, the lightning has burned it. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death though its living rims whitely at the lip of the darkness and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history healed over. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death though its living brims whitely at the lip of the darkness and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarles of its history healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and blending of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents, into its purpose. It has become the intention and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical and unassailable. In all the country there is no other like it. I recognise in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater, that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it and is fed upon and is native and maker.
4: I remember I liked it so much that I took it to my knitting groups. And so I've got a poem to read to you all. I never understood poems because, you know, it's kind of like abstract a lot of the time. It didn't seem so abstract, and I can't remember if this is the way she read it. I think it was the way she read it, the pace. It was, I think it was about the pace and the tone that she read it. Like, you've been read a story to, you know, and I feel like, even though even though we're adults, I wish I had somebody to, to sing a lullaby or to um, read a nice story to me, you know, and it's like, I don't know, it takes you back to, to being nurtured in a sense. I find, um, especially as we're in the lockdown, you know, we've covered about like the trees, you know, life, the trees having a life of its own, the shape of the tree. It it kind it kind of uh, triggered like um, nature to me, and you know, I have a tree outside my house, which I've never paid attention to, but it it sort of inspired me to look at n- nature a bit closer. It made me. Pay attention a bit more when, when the poems or the or the settings of a of the books talks about you know your your surroundings. It's um, something that I've never, as like I said, as a city person, something that I just pass without a second thought. But when I started to read in depth about nature, because like I said, when you examine just the little particles of the poem. Sometimes there might even have been a bird in there, you know, like you think, oh, what's, what's that called? And then because I've, I've got like an inquiring child like mine, um, sometimes I think, oh, okay, you know, it's like um, something that you, you could relate to. And at the same time, it's connecting you to like, like the author. And you feel like, well, maybe me and the author's got something that we could relate to. It makes it more enriching. It's like, you feel more enriched and appreciate just the little simple things. Just a bit like my tree, because my tree outside my house, someone told me it was a, a, a Rowan tree. Over, it was overgrown, so the council had to come and trim it down because it was too far out. So it made me want to find out more about the Rowan tree. So it just made me want to explore, you know, you feel like <laughs> there's a saying um, in a knitting world, you know, like when you've got a very complicated pattern. And they, they call it retirement knitting. That's retirement knitting. You can't do that now because it's going <laughs> it, to, it takes a lot of unraveling and, and practice to get to, to do like something like lace work. So, you know, really intricate work. But I feel like it's, it's given you a time where you feel like you can spend the time to examine just the littlest, smallest, intricate detail without feeling like, um, you haven't got the time. Well, it's as though you feel like you'll never have the time in in your fast-paced life to do the the really complicated, intricate work until you retire. So when you're retired, of course, you're sitting at home. What do I do now? Do some gardening. Things that you always wanted to do, but you didn't have the time because you were young and busy and everything else. The areas they touch on is helping me to, to focus and examine things that I just took for granted.
0: We're hoping this year's Bookshelf will start a series of chain reactions within the readers' network of shared reading groups and reach beyond that network too as people read great literature together and share their thoughts and feelings about it and pass on poems and stories returning to the Bookshelf for new ideas and recommendations and adding to it too. What we want is movement really, just like the movements that can happen when we read. A feeling moving from page to voice to mind. A spark or jolt of recognition. The inward eye moving outward to see the world afresh. That's it for this episode of the Reader Podcast. You'll find the poem The Sycamore in the collection The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry, which is published by Penguin. We're so grateful to Patricia and to Nicola Davis for their contributions to this episode and to Walker Books for their long-standing support of the reader. Thanks also to my excellent colleagues, Claire, Cara and Fiona and to Chris Lynn for sound editing and production support. The reader relies on the kind support of our core funders, Arts Council England the National Lottery Community Fund, the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. We'll be back soon for more conversation, recommendations and shared reading. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit the Reader's website to find out the various ways you can support our work through donation, subscribing to The Reader magazine or becoming a friend of The Reader or simply leave us a review and help to spread the word. Till next time, goodbye.